Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to the fourth meeting, oh, week four of uh, the Israel Study Seminar. Our speaker uh, today is uh, Professor Nitzan Leibovich, who is Professor of History and the Aptor Chair of Holocaust Studies and Ethical Values at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. Uh, Nitzan is the author of monographs and edited collections dedicated to German life philosophy, Zionism, and melancholy. Or other happy concepts such as nihilism, catastrophe, complicity, and dissent. Yes, that's just a start. Yes, that's a start. Um, and the title of his talk today is "Is Zionism a left a left wing melancholy?" Thank you, Nitzan. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jacob. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very glad to see the room is full in spite of the beautiful spring day. Uh, I thought on the way here, I told Yaakov that, that uh, it's not very it feels almost inappropriate to talk about melancholy at such a sunny, beautiful day, spring day, but I'll do my best to uh, send you back out uh, with a hopeful mood. Um, and with that, let's uh, start. Maybe before we do, um, I, I, I hope you don't mind, but if um, anyone, everyone can just say a word about who they are and, and what they do here. Is that okay? Yes, it's okay. To, yes. to take I, five minutes for that? I'll, I'll pause the recording, yes. It's around the table. Um, what I'm going to do today is uh, tell you a bit about the, the, so the origins or the, the starting point of this research um, and where it led me. Uh, the book, I published two versions of this book, one in Hebrew uh, in 2015 and, and one 16, and one in English in 2019. Uh, this is the cover. Um, you can pass that later and, and take a look if you're interested. Um, and I'll say um, two words about the historical aspect of that and actually the stylistic aspect of it. I came across, uh, first, I came across a, an excerpt from a short story uh, that this forgotten author I never heard about before uh, wrote. Those of you who know Hebrew literature maybe know his daughter, uh, Nuri Zarchi, who's one of the uh, best-known authors currently in Israel, the, the winner of the Israel Prize, and um, uh, a really well-known uh, author and, and poet. Uh, and, and after reading that excerpt, some of which, um, a part of which you're going to see here later, uh, I was interested, I was really uh, baffled by that because I've never seen anything like that in Hebrew literature before. There was something that uh, combined, as, as Yaakov mentioned, you know, I'm interested in, in catastrophic and apocalyptic and, you know, happy, happy concepts of that, of that sort. And uh, this author combined in a very interesting way uh, secular literature, German literature, Polish literature, but then also uh, Christian apocalyptic motifs together with uh, biblical uh, eschatological motifs. And in a way I never really came across uh, before, and I thought that's really interesting, I want to read more. And after uh, reading more of that literature, I decided to actually try to find out uh, who he was and, and uh, why I never heard of him before, because I did study. I started actually with uh, Hebrew literature, theory of literature, and English literature at Tel Aviv University. Uh, and I moved then to intellectual history, to history. And I thought it's, it's very odd that I never heard the name before. Uh, so I went and actually looked for material and I found, uh, um, I, I couldn't find anything in, in, the, in the established histories of literature of, of Israeli or Hebrew literature, there's, there's nothing, absolutely zero, about this person. 
And then I looked further and I found out that uh, not only he published six novels and seven uh, collections of, of short stories, uh, he translated some of the best known, some of the best known uh, classics, uh, classical works from European literature, actually, his translations. I'll give you a few examples. Those of you who know, for instance, um, uh, uh, von Kleist, uh, Michael Kolhas, Janusz Kolczak, Joseph Conrad from English. Um, they're, they're really classical translations from different languages, uh, which he introduced to the, to the Hebrew-speaking public in the, in the early 1940s, uh, late 1930s, early 1940s. Um, and so on and so forth. I, I started actually researching the, the biography and I found out that the archive is... So when I started researching, it was, those of you, anyone who knows the Israeli archive, it was in one archive, it was completely messed up and they couldn't find anything there. And luckily, uh, about a year later, they actually moved the archive, the Gnazim Literary Archive, from where it was before uh, to a new location. And they, they had no choice but actually organize it, at least superficially. So I was able to find the files and the boxes and the letters and the diaries and, and all this stuff that no one actually knew even existed before. And that's, you know, for a historian, that's revelation, right? And there's, there's, that's the, God of, the voice of God actually <clears throat> telling you, you have something here. Um, and I read through the material and, and then I decided, okay, there's enough material here for an actual research that was after I finished uh, and published my first book, which was a, about a completely different uh, uh, area of study. And first I thought it was um, enough material for an article and then I, after finding the archival materials um, th that were so rich, I decided it was uh, enough actually for a book. Someone actually gave me that advice, Aman Yaakov and I know, um, uh, um, and I decided to actually turn it into a book. So here's the thing. When you read through um, both the translations and the literary writing of this author, you find out the following thing. So he himself, and I'll connect the literature to the biography in a way literature people are, are very uh, conscious about, but I'll explain why I do that. So he's, but let's start with the biography. So he um, was born in Yenjiev uh, in Poland uh, in 1889, died uh, in 1947, so very, very young. I, I'm sorry, um, 19, 1909, was born in 1909, died in 1947, so very, very young. Um, died of cancer, but after many years of, of um, what we now know as clinical depression. Back then, people called it melancholy. He was a melancholic author. When you read the literature, you find out that uh, he wrote about the life of Zionist pioneers. He kind of documented that as a Zionist pioneer himself. He emigrated to Palestine in 1928. He worked in the kibbutz, in the fields, and then in the orchards. Um, he actually worked in uh, Rouven, the painter, you see here, the painting, uh, where Rouven, the painter, paints behind him his own orchard. And the author I'm going to tell you about, Israel Zach, he worked in the orchard, uh, you see behind there, and uh, cultivated the land. Then he uh, moved to pave roads, you know, kind of the classical Zionist story about um, uh, you know, um, occupying the, the, the frontier and, and getting the, uh, winning back the land uh, and, and yeah, flourishing and, and, and blossoming and, and making something out of it. The usual Zionist story uh, of pioneers. And uh, got married, had a child, the single child, Nuri Zahi, who's now an author herself and died, uh, as said, in 1947. 
The literature, though, about the Zionist pioneers that he met or that he introduces as if he knows very intimately are all um, organized in a melancholic mode. What does that mean? It means that they all come with this high language of, of ideals to Palestine to work the land, cultivate the land, and uh, with this mission that is collective in their minds, and they all fail. So there's a gap between the ideal and the realization. And as you'll see in a minute, that connects with the language of melancholy that uh, is at the heart of this, um, uh, at the heart of, um, of this project. And when I read the diaries and the letters, the diaries and the letters actually uh, followed that form, that structure. So in the diaries and the letters uh, in the archive, he recurrently echoes that notion of high idealistic language on the one hand, European idealistic language, and I mean that in the philosophical sense of idealism. Uh, so German idealism, European idealism, that assumes that the, the progress of humanity should go from ideal to realization, right? Kant and Hegel and so on and so forth. Um, and the failure, the, the notion that once he actually comes to Palestine and starts working in the land and wants to realize his ideals as a pioneer, He's not able to achieve that for different reasons, um, as you'll see in a minute, and, and the whole thing kind of falls apart. And that creates a melancholic mode for the story and for his own um, reports about his own life. And I thought that's really interesting. It's inter interesting for me as a historian who documents people's lives, right? And the collective movement and the, the language and the discourse of Zionism. And it's interesting as a, as a reader of texts, of, of literature, because the two walk hand in hand, more or less. Now, what I wanted to do here today is, is the following. I'll say a few words. I'll try to do that very quickly, uh, which is why I have the slide so you can follow. I'll say a few words about what melancholy is. And of course, there's much more to say about it. But just to get um, uh, the language, the lingo of melancholy. Um, then I'll um, say a few words about where Zalchi or other authors of that period, of the 1930s and 1940s, how they write and why they write in the melancholic mode, so within a Jewish framework. And then I'll take a third step, which is I'll try to ponder uh, about his own poetics or what he tries to do with that. So, what is melancholy? The danger of collective melancholy or the relation to Churban, which is the Jewish um, uh, echo of that literary Zionist utopia. And I'll touch on a, a few classical um, well-known figures. I understand from Yaakov, Amos Soz uh, uh, was even here in Oxford for a while. So Klausner, who was Amos Oz's uh, uncle, I'll talk about that, Amos Oz and then Israel Zalchi. And I'll uh, try to characterize all that as uh, a mode of left-wing melancholy. So let's start with melancholia. What is melancholy? So according to Freud, and this is a essay, an essay from 1915, Freud wrote the essay in 1915, revised it uh, in 1917, added the second part to the, to the essay, where, and this became one of the classical um, um, big essays. Much of the contemporary critical theory uh, is, is going back to that. Uh, if you read Judith Butler, you read Rida, you know, all these uh, big figures of critical theory of the second half of the 20th century, echo that, uh, that essay when they write Kristeva, as we'll see in a minute, uh, echo that notion. So what is melancholy? Melancholy, according to Freud, is a reaction to the loss of a loved person or the loss of some abstraction, 
So the loss of, loss of, an, of a loved person or the loss of some obstruction which has taken the place of one, that is the loved one, such as one's country, liberty, an idea, and so on. According to Freud, the melancholic displays something which is lacking in mourning. So Freud echoes or contrasts melancholy and mourning. Melancholy note is the pathological side. Mourning, or what Derrida would later call the work of mourning, is the therapeutic or the, the, the positive side of, of melancholy, right? So that when you work through your mourning after the loss, you're able to go out from the exit that from the other side uh, by integrating the loss into your ego, right? And, and create a complete and a healthy ego. Melancholy is when you sink into that kind of pathological notion of loss. So unlike, which is lacking in mourning, an extraordinary diminution in his self-regard, an impoverishment of his ego on a grand scale. In mourning, it is the world which has become poor and empty. In melancholy, it is the ego itself. So we think the ego is, is um, you become obsessed with that notion of loss. You celebrate the loss, right? And Freud, uh, in, this, in this essay, actually attaches that to a degree to what narcissism is, is doing very often. So, and and the, the link there is, is uh, melancholy, something we are letting ourselves uh, uh, get obsessed about and uh, be our ego uh, identify with. So we integrate the loss as part of our identity. And at that point, Freud argues, we fetishize the loss. We stop thinking about the, the person, let's say, the person we lost, the, who died or, or you know, lost love, we, we lost track of. And what we become obsessed with is the notion of loss itself. So it's not the person anymore. It's not what we lost. It's not the object. It's now the celebration of the loss itself, which replaces the person. Yeah? That's the pathological aspect of it. Critical theory, uh, now in the second half of the 20th century, is trying to work with Freud, but beyond Freud, about what melancholy means in cultural and in political terms. And Kristeva, in Black Sun, says the following. Maybe, Jonathan, that will connect with classicism in a way. The Iliad gave us in Bellerophon Bel um, the melancholic's tendency to self-pity. So you, you see she keeps the pathological aspect of Freud's uh, observation. Forsaken by the gods, exiled by divine decree, this desperate... Uh, desperate man, was condemned not to mania, but to banishment, absence, and void. Melancholy for her is a denial of loss. So now, it's not just the person we lost, but it's the, the attempt to deny the, the notion of loss, but not being able to free ourselves from it, which belongs to a world devoid of signifies, of signifiers, or signification. And I'll, I'll give an example for that. It's a self-referentiality brought close to narcissism and fetishism. Now, if you think about that notion of obsession, right, when all we think about obsessively is the notion of loss, we stop thinking, as, as Freud tells us, about the world as something that has any relevance to our notion of loss, and we let ourselves uh, sink, um, dive into that notion of loss as if that actually can fill us with new content. In other words, signifiers or, let's say, uh, markers out in the, in, the, in the world seem completely irrelevant. And you'll see why that is relevant when we talk about Zalchi. 
even more uh, recently, Giorgio Agamben, the um, theoretician, the Italian theoretician identified with now a thinking about what we call the biopolitical critique or biopolitics. He's saying the following. So when he thinks about melancholy, its planet is Saturn. And here we see how melancholy works in personal psychological terms as collective cultural form, but also in cosmological terms, right? It's planned is Saturn among those children, the melancholic finds himself with the hanged man, the cripple, the peasant, the gambler, the physiological syndrome of abuntatia melancholia, abundance of melancholy humor, and humor, by humor, we'll see what it means, including, uh, includes darkening of the skin, blood and urine, hardening of the pulse, burning in the gut, flatulence, avid burping, whistling in the left ear, constipation, or everything you ever thought is bad, you know, it's here, um, or, or problematic. Excess of feces, a gloomy, gloomy dreams. Among the diseases it can include are hysteria, dementia, epilepsy, leprosy, homeroids, uh, scabies, and suicidal mania, mania. The melancholic is Praxima complexionatus, worse com com uh, complected, so the complexion of the skin, sad, envious, malevolent, avid, fraudulent, cowardly, and earthly. So the cosmos, right, Saturn, which is the sign, the symbol of melancholia, and the melancholic, the melancholic psychology are tightly interwoven. Yeah? And, and that's maybe the force Freud is actually trying to revive, going back to classical uh, symbols and trying to um, bring back to modernity, to the modern world. Now, when Agamben and, and Kristeva and other theoreticians think about the history of melancholy and how to integrate that into critical theory, they actually think about the history of melan melancholia itself, of melancholy itself. And the history has an interesting, um, 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 it's, its own intellectual history behind it. So usually, and I'll, I'll now digress, I'll, I'll walk back. So critical theory right now usually mentions, uh, is obsessed in some ways with uh, Walter Benjamin, the theoretician, the German-Jewish um, refugee from uh, Germany who committed suicide on the border of, of France, trying to attempt, uh, attempting uh, to escape the Nazis. Um, himself a theoretician of melancholy when he thinks about early modern, uh, the early modern figure of Hamlet or the sovereign, uh, the, the, the dark, the, the dark uh, uh, prince, right? Uh, the figure that actually enables in, in early modernity an alternative to notions to, to the positive or progressive notions of sovereignty since Hobbes. I know it sounds all over the place, but I'll, I'll connect all the dots, I promise you. So Benjamin thinks we need to actually understand modernity and the notion of sovereignty as the inheritor, the outcome of that history which he thinks actually starts with the early modern notion of sovereignty. Those of you who know Foucault, Foucault is someone else who thinks along those lines, right? Modern sovereignty created a different notion of sovereignty that actually is devoid of divine entities and that secularizes, right? Secularizes uh, our relation to hierarchy, try to rationalize it, uh, try to create a scientific discourse, and then actually, uh, because of that, lays all the responsibility over the shoulders of the prince. That's why we have in early modernity so many guides to princes and kings and queens how to behave and how to be a good ruler, right? Machiavelli and so on and so forth. So um, Benjamin says we need to actually understand that all these princes actually, when we 
look and actually read them, read their inter um, 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 uh, correspondences or exchanges with other, uh, with other people, are usually very melancholic people. And the reason is because of that cut, yeah? Uh, they do not represent anymore. They, so they, they become the, the new deities, right, of our world. And that's too much of a burden. They all become that figure of Hamlet, which he, he, for him is becoming a symbol for new notion of sovereignty. Now, Benjamin is, himself actually comes, uh, writes that a few, um, a short time, two, three years after a historical research by the Valbog School uh, in London, um, uh, or two students uh, that actually uh, emigrate to, uh, to London and to America then, Panofsky and Zaxel, who then uh, add uh, a third uh, scholar, and who write together the history of melancholy, about Saturn and melancholia. That's the title of the book, in, published in 1923. Um, all German Jews, all of them are thinking about melancholy, not by, by coincidence, um, um, within the context of Europe basically falling apart, yeah? and the, the catastrophe that happens in Europe. So it's not by coincidence that they, they decide that melancholy becomes the model, the prototype of everything that happens in modernity. And it's not by coincidence that they think that in order to understand uh, why sovereignty is falling apart in modernity, we need to understand its history since coming um, or the inherited from the early modern period. So when we get back to the Middle Ages, Panofsky and Zaxel and then Benjamin, we see the following. If during the Middle Ages, that's Panofsky and Zaxel, the melancholy gaze was compared to the look of the mad dog, usually black, which is why I put this image of the black dog in the first slide, uh, usually black, and the impression, um, of, the impression of the night. Later, it was psychologized and personified. That's Panofsky and Zaxel's uh, point of transformation between the Middle Ages and the early modern time. Um, melancholy, which, be, me, melancholy be, which before was cosmological on the one hand and very private on the other, yeah? uh, part of the four humors of the body, physical and medical, is personified and becomes part of the, psycholog uh, psycho the, the larger contextualized uh, collective notion of, of human beings. In modern times, and that's Benjamin following Panofsky and Zaxel, melancholy turned to be the liminal space between different zones of existence. It was made to be transgressed. Walter Benjamin, a Trauerspiel, the morning play, showed that the paradigmatic melancholic figure, that's me, not him, uh, the melancholic figure of the time was, uh, for that very reason, the figure of the prince, or rather a beastly prince. This is Hamlet, yeah? Beastly prince. In his words, nothing demonstrates the frailty of the creaturely. So the beastly prince is becoming the model of the creaturely, something that isn't in between the, the animal and the, and the human. In his words, nothing demonstrates the frailty of the creaturely so drastically as the fact that even he is subject to melancholy. Now, that brings us to the um, second part, and that's very, very brief because I do want to get to uh, Zachian and modernity. Um, Alan Mintz, in a classical work, those of you who do not know it, I highly recommend it, from 1984, but already uh, kind of classical in Jewish studies, Morning in Hebrew Literature in 1984, talks about Choban destruction, um, in Jewish uh, history as uh, being usually connected, again, the, the uh, modern form of, of modern politics connected uh, directly to a notion of, of divine punishment in this case, a system of coding events that interpreted catastrophes as disasters of such magnitude that could be contained within a system of commemoration that telescope events back to the beginning, 
And then a social, uh, socially Zionist education called for a substantial trans-evaluation of Jewish life, but emphasized apocalyptic threats and Zionist ideology as a solution. So in other terms, when we move from the uh, um, uh, early modernist uh, understanding of Jewish culture, following the pogroms and persecution in, since the Inquisition and so on, um, uh, to modern times, the notion of, of a destruction that is... Um, guided by divine will, some kind of mystical plan, um, uh, and then the, the, that connects to motifs such as Kiddush Hashem and so on, uh, we can talk about that, um, is being secularized and then fetishized in some ways by, uh, uh, through that process of social Zionist, socially Zionist uh, process of education, according to which um, the threat of destruction of Zionism is, is being compared to an apocalyptic event, right? And here we see a paradigmatic shift. Melancholy, which um, has been before diasporic and exilic, and contrasted with uh, the Triyan revival of Zionism, right? Zionists ident identify melancholy as part of uh, exilic um, uh, existence that is abnormal. And I quote in parenthesis, these are observations made by historians of literature, such as Dan Meron, Ron Cousin, um, melancholy in that sense is peripheral rather than universal and canonical. Amnon Razgar Kutskin, David Bill, Hanan Hever, um, uh, Ella Shochat, Yuda Shenav, and others. And they see, Zion, or historians of Zionism see melancholy showing in the form of um, minor literature. And we can talk about what that means later. It stresses hybridic, heterogenic identity rather than unity and homogeneity. Historians of Zionism, of Zionist literature, um, usually emphasize that notion that in Zionism we uh, usually the attempt is to, to project some kind of unity and homogeneity, Eshel, Rokem, Shachar, Baruch, and others. Um, and again, the notion is that melancholy contrasts with a triumphalist narrative. And that will connect us to um, what Zalchi is um, uh, wanting to do. But before that, I want to um, mention two, three examples of people who bring us um, or who introduce us to, to uh, this process or the historical process of, of literature. Um, so Zahi writes at the time when the academic discipline of the history of literature is just being invented, is created for the first time at the Hebrew University. As I mentioned, he immigrates in 1928 the Hebrew University is established in 1925-1926 by luminaries such as Gershom Scholem, Walter Benjamin's best friend, um, and other, many of them German Jews or European, Eastern European Jews who speak German. And there's kind of, those of you who know the Hebrew or know the history of the Hebrew University, there's a lot of complaints uh, about the, the, the only German-speaking uh, university outside the German world back at the time that is in Jerusalem. Um, one of these people is Josef Klausner, whose dissertation was published in German first. Uh, Josef Klausner is the great uncle of Amos Oz, the, the author Amos Oz. And Josef Klausner is considered to be one of the first um, um, historians of literature, of Hebrew literature, um, a, an interesting um, transformative figure who gathered, invented, and then was the head of the, uh, of the department, um, so really establishing a whole discipline, a very important one. In 1904, uh, his book uh, um, ties, links, 
his notion of Zionism specifically to a messianic discourse. He views Zionism as what will use the tools of modern secular politics to realize the promise of messianic theology, of eschatological uh, form of messianism, the promise of the, of the land to the, to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, will be realized, but not by a divine decree, but by sovereign uh, secular modern politics. In 1919, uh, he immigrates to Palestine um, and declares Hebrew as a messianic language. So the language itself is, is then um, carrying the weight of messianism. In 1940, writes the following, the political, spiritual, messianic ideal of Israel will be realized in all its fullness and the Jewish people will dwell in the land historically theirs and will speak the language historically theirs and Judaism in the form of ethical, prophetic monotheism will spread over all the world. Now, those of you who know um, um, the history, the intellectual history, Klausner's um, enemy in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University uh, was Gershom Sholem. Gershom Sholem, uh, the historian of Kabbalah, believed that that form of understanding messianic language in a, in a sovereign, modern cloth is an apocalyptic threat itself. He said these people who speak messianism in a sovereign political uh, form are bringing the end on all of us because they don't understand that what they integrate now is the war of all against all, basically. So they, they create a structure, a language, a linguistic structure that incorporates to begin with an apocalyptic form of thinking that if not um, um, leading to redemption, will lead inevitably to destruction. That's the two opposite sides. Yeah? So Klausner is leading into the realization side, Sholem is really warning and, and uh, trying to uh, get away from that. And again, you see the Gershom Sholem Vatver Benjamin kind of uh, uh, discussion leading in one way and the, the, um, uh, that form of secular, um, secularism of, of messianism leading in, in the opposite direction. Now, Amos Oz, um, before I conclude with Zachi, is uh, the uh, nephew of uh, Josef Klausner. He's writing about Klausner uh, at length in A Tale of Love and Darkness, a book that won huge acclaim and that tells the history, his own personal history, his own biography, but in a very poetic voice. And he tells about Klausner and he to uh, talks about his parents and he talks about something very interesting. Um, I'm actually not sure. I don't mention that here, but those of you who read the book will see something interesting. In this book, uh, in A Tale of Love and Darkness, there's a pretty long, um, uh, and I quote that at length, in, and I got uh, Amos Oz, um, uh confirmation to actually quote uh, verbatim from this book. There's a long excerpt telling about Amos Oz as a child. And when Amos Oz grew up with his parents and with Klausner uh, as his great uncle, who he admired, um, he tells about being, uh, living for a while, actually renting a room in the Zalchi apartment in Jerusalem as a child. So his parents actually rented a room from Israel Zalchi, from the figure I'm, I'm writing about. And Amos Oz talks about him with great admiration. He says, this person actually taught me that an author is someone who can see the world with his own mind. And as a child, he used to play in Zalchi's study. Uh, Israel Zalchi used to babysit him. So when his parents left to scroll through the street of Jerusalem, Zahi actually um, um, babysat him, and the young Amosos, the child, would, would sit and play with the books that were spread uh, all around. 
I won't ruin the story for him, but he tells a beautiful, beautiful anecdote about Zachi actually, uh, Zachi's friendship with his own father. But just to um, um, get the, the, uh, the political angle here, so why is all that uh, a left, or why does the, the early messianic language actually now connect to a left-wing melancholy? Amos Oz, who's represent, or who's considered to be the, the representative of left-wing, liberal Zionism, social democratic um, Zionism, is um, connecting or, or linking through, again, his both biography and literature, the, the, the link, the missing link in some way, between the right-wing messianic language of his great uncle, Josef Klausner, and the liberal um, uh, social democratic labor party that still keeps the language of Triav revivalism, of secularism, and of the redemption of the land, even though it's supposedly a left-wing um, um, uh, left ideology. And he says the following. So we can see through the biography how that, that transformation actually occurs. My parents were attracted to the intelligentsia of Rechavia, that is a, the German-speaking um, quarter in Jerusalem, but the pacifist ideals of Martin Buber, Martin Buber's Brit Shalom, Martin Buber and Gershom Sholem were the founders of Brit Shalom, uh, sentimental kinship between Jews and Arabs, total abandonment of dream of Hebrew, of the Hebrew state, so that Arabs would uh, take pity on us and kindly allow us to live here and, and uh, at their feet. Such ideals appear to my parents as spineless appeasement, craven defeatism of the type that had characterized the centuries of Jewish diaspora life. And Amos Oz is the founder of what we call in Hebrew um, the Siach um, um, the, the combatant discourse. Amos Oz in 1967 went with uh, Avram Shapira, those of you who know, who know the name, uh, the best known editor of the time of the, from the kibbutz movement, to interview the soldiers that came back from the 67 war. And in that uh, report, which he published, uh, he does something interesting. He echoes in a very poetic language the suffering, the mourning, and what he actually uh, deems as, or he doesn't deem, he approves of that, the melancholic voice of the soldiers who were forced against their will to fight and shoot um, at the Arab enemy. And that, you see, the, the kind of um, heart-bleeding, kind of left-wing melancholy we see um, of, of, you know, again, the, the, the great-uncle who was a right-wing messianic, now translated through the language of sovereignty to the left-wing um, uh, grandson or the, the nephew, who now thinks there's no, no other choice but actually echoing um, uh, the, the melancholy of those who are not able to realize their mess messianism literally and therefore sink into melancholy and have no other choice but, right? After 1967, a certain melancholy decence, the sorrow of decence, right? A sore experience by people who felt shut in their hearts, long for other places that are not specific, but they are decent. These are quotes from uh, In the Land of Israel, 1983, where he contemplates about 1967. The trembling heart, the failing of eyes, and sore of the mind. These are what we call in Israel the shooting and crying, the soldiers. They shoot and they cry at the same time. And Amos Oz is completely affirmative about it. They have no choice, but they shoot and they cry. Right? They cry as they shoot. Yeah? Now, finally, uh, the conclusion is Israel Zachi, 1909-1947. And I want to actually um, end, conclude with the excerpt I mentioned in the beginning and show you why I think Zachi, or really writing about melancholy, is enabling us to see this history of the shift from the right wing to the left wing, left wing 
When we see that from a melancholic perspective, in a non-triumphalist way, why the history of melancholy allows us an alternative, a, an alternative history that brings together uh, the secularization of Messianism on the one hand, and this shooting and crying or left-wing melancholy uh, in 1967. Histor historically speaking, this is a shift from uh, 19, the 1940s or 1950s to a generation, the generation that came after 1967, and where the melancholy itself which began as, a, as an alternative now becomes, now is celebrated. It's become fetishized itself with Amosos and that generation. Israel Zahi, I think, and that's why, that's how I explain um, forgetting him, his, uh, the fact that he was completely suppressed and, and disappeared from the pages of history of literature in Israel. I think he's writing in different mode. The fact that he really dives into melancholy allows a different form, a different historical mode. And this is the, the way he writes. So in the guest house, Malone Orchim, nineteen published in 1942. Of course, not by coincidence, again, this is 1942, when uh, the news about the annihilation in Europe starts to get to, uh, start to, get to, um, uh, to Palestine. And he thinks deeply about what does it mean to think about destruction at that, uh, at that point. Um, and those of you who know the Bible, Malone Orchim is, of course, uh, a trope from the book of Jeremiah. Yeah? So the, the, uh, um, one of the, prophecy of the prophecies of destruction. And the echo, that's how one of the stories uh, end. And the echo of decent fine days rises from every piece of furniture and sweet longing lodges in the lavish carved wood, reviving from the muffled sound of the clock, rejoicing with the beats of its deep heart. And here in the corners of the room, the Nathans, the family of Malone is a guest house, the, the owners of the guest house, find a haven in the lonely hours of foreignness, foreignness itself, right? There, one can search for the echo of distant, vanished sound. This entire attempt to build a state, one of the guest house guests, a German Jew who contemplates about emigrating and who never really acclimatizes to the new language of Hebrew and to Zionist discourse, contemplates about his life there, and thinks and, and says the following, the entire attempt to build a state, it will all blown away by the wind. It will all blow over like the foam of the sea. A state may be established here in accordance with local natural law, but that is not what you were hoping for. The judge, this is the, the person who talks, sank into a strange immobility. After the war's early days, he had become perfectly still and was interested in, not. was not interested, I'm sorry, in anything. And uh, before just, I, I'll leave that here for you to refer to, but I want to frame, uh, broadly speaking, um, my talk here today and open that to questions or any ideas uh, about that in the following way. So I'm interested in, in melancholy in the following way, in four different frameworks. And that is connected to the way I, I wrote the, the book, the style of the book, and I'll say, I'll conclude with that. There are four different layers. One is actually the internal one. The internal one, when I talk about the archive of this author, is his psychology on the one hand, um, which is psycho or psychoanalysis, right? Psychoanalytical motives, understanding his biography on the one hand, but also the text, the way he writes about the Zionist pioneers who keep failing in their work, daily labor. Yeah, they, they fail cultivating the land. They fail paving the roads. They cannot sustain sustain uh, living in that place. They, they go everywhere, but they, but they can't find their way. They, they're all lost somehow. 
losing signifiers, right? They never know where they, they are directionless. They, they, they have no sense of direction ever. So one layer is the internal one or the psychological one. Another one, the second one, is the reception of, of this um, uh, figure, both as a, as, a, as a person, and I can say more about that, as a figure during that time, as an author, and as someone who actually tries to deliver, deliver a certain message. In fact, Josef Klausner, who Zachi was very close to, Zachi studied under him for his MPhil, um, uh, and then actually won in a, uh, a one-year fellowship to Cambridge. So he spent a year and a half in Cambridge before going back to the Hebrew U. Um, and under, under, so he talks about, Zach, about Klausner in his diaries as well. And Klausner, after his death, says the following about Zachi's literature. It is, it's a literature that was not able to overcome forgetfulness. Oblivion. He doesn't explain what he means. That's in the eulogy to Zachi, which to me sounds really cruel, right? A, a literature that cannot overcome uh, oblivion, meaning he deserves it. And it's not by coincidence that someone who's as messianic uh, as Klausner thinks that someone who writes about the failure of, of, of pioneers deserves to be forgotten, right? So the only place, the only one of the very, very few, there are maybe two or three indications for or reviews or any, any mentions of Zalchi are all about why he deserves to be forgotten. Yeah? Um, so that's the reception. That's the second layer. The third layer is talking about literature, the style of the literature itself as a minor literature. I'm not going to go into the theory of that. Those of you who know where the um, uh, concept is coming from, the Les Gateria are talking about Kafka as a form of minor literature. And I think Zachi completely answers that uh, way of thinking. He tries to create a literature that is spoken, that is told in, the, in a minor language. And you can see that even you know, by, if you go back to his way of writing, it's combining or the way it integrates, you know, biblical and, for instance, um, Kleistian, Kleist, right, motifs or apocalyptic motifs from Christianity is never explicit. It's always hidden. It's always coded in some way. So there's something about it that is always disguised as, as minor, something you don't need to really pay much attention to. Um, so that's the third level. The fourth level and that is the most important for me as a historian, is the one of the history of the discourse. And my argument here is that I think melancholy is not by coincidence something that um, is not really discussed openly by the early period in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, back then, what we see is what we call in Hebrew, or the revivalist discourse. That's what people are trying to echo, including Zalchi in his diaries. They come with this idealist language of we're going to actually um, cultivate and realize these high ideals, right? Revive the promise of, the, um, uh, of God, basically, but in a secular modern mode. And, um, and after they fail, they, they talk about, they go, they retreat. They retreat back into the inner mode. So they, they retreat back into something that, that is told in a psychological mode rather than contemplating about it in, in a public way, right? Or something that connects back to the Bible or any collective uh, discourse. So 
that's in the 1940s, 1950s, when the State of Israel is declared, 1948, right? When you move forward with 1967, you see that the fetishization of melancholy, now adopted by the left wing, not to celebrate the alternative to Zionism, but becoming, becoming actually identified with Zionism, the shooting and crying. So now we have a way to frame not only the right-wing Zionist way of, of realizing the promise of the land, but in fact integrate into that the language of those who actually think you need to cry as you shoot. Yeah? So it's not just messianic, it's actually melancholic as well, and melancholy itself is being fetishized. As we move forward, we jump to the 1980s, 1990s, something else happens, and that is not in the book. That is my generation, or rather the generation that actually follows uh, my generation, which is now, actually melancholy itself is forgotten. There's no sense of melancholy. You shoot, you don't cry. If you cry, you're, deemed, you're blamed for, for being someone who empathizes with something that is anti-Zionist. So now melancholy itself is actually forgotten. In other terms, what we see, I think, when we follow the history of the discourse of melancholy is something that is indicative to the history of Zionist discourse through its symptomatic attempt to forget or its symptomatic attempt to actually suppress what is inconvenient for it to actually admit in. And um, I'll just say, the, the, uh, so that was my conclusion, but if you're interested, there's a lot of, um, so a year after I published my book, actually, Enzo Traverso, one of the uh, best historians of left-wing, um, neo-Marxist, actually thinking, came up with the left-wing melancholy, the history of left-wing melancholy for um, thinking about neo-Marxism and why we need to revive the language of neo-Marxism that uh, needs to overcome melancholy. Wendy Brown is thinking specifically about the mode of left-wing melancholy. You can see up there, following Walter Benjamin's um, uh, essay that is dedicated to the question, she says it is a left, left-wing melancholy, that has become more attached to its impossibility than to its potential fruitfulness. It is caught in a structure of melancholic attachment to a strain of its own dead past. She accuses the left-wing melancholy, and she doesn't think about Zionism, so it's not a matter, it's not a, a historical form trope for her, but she really thinks about the, the second half of the 20th century as a mode of left-wing uh, um, uh, melancholy, about the liberal, right, what we know as liberalism, classical liberal, uh, at least in America, I don't know where I come from now, um, classical liberalism um, as a form of, of fetishized uh, uh, melancholy, and pathological uh, form of, of thinking about the world, which for her, or for people like uh, Enzo Toverso and her, is not that different from reactionary uh, mode of messianic thinking, messianic realization. Um, and finally, um, okay, I'll, I'll leave that at that, but I'll just say uh, one last thing um, that wraps, wraps this up. Um, which for me, and that connects to my uh, next book, which is now, uh, um, I finished another manuscript, uh, manuscript about uh, uh, thinking about time, uh, Jewish time. And what led actually to that subject was the notion that in melancholy we find a form of thinking about temporality that is suppressed, that is uneasy, that is very often uh, inconvenient for us to actually admit in, and I can say more about it, but that is built in, specifically in melancholy on the notion of stasis, because in melancholy, as this judge, if you remember, who um, sits back, right, and is not interested in anything, yeah, perfectly still, um, 
he's sinking in what is usually happening to Zahri's protagonists as well. They lose their sense of direction, they lose their sense of telos, of, of aim, when the ideal cannot be realized, and they sink back into something that is internal, something that is immobile, that they cannot uh, get away from. And then they sink into what we identify very often in clinical, as clinical depression, right? And that is how Zach himself um, uh, depicts his own uh, life and his last year before his death. And with that, in this beautiful spring day, <laughs> I'll be happy to hear any thoughts. Um, feel free to be as critical as you think you may um, need to be. I'm happy to hear critique. I'm very open. I love critique. Um, or anything you, you might want to ask. Thank you. Thank you very much.